as we do have a long way to go to get all those people registered to the voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. This episode of Dead Men Don't Vote is made possible in part by the Election Verification Network. The nonpartisan EVN is made up of election officials, researchers, and advocates committed to accurate, accessible, transparent, reliable, and verifiable elections. Learn more or get advice from experts at electionverification.org. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote, the podcast where election experts help you, the American voter, understand how elections work and how you can help restore confidence in American democracy. At the Trust the Vote Project, we've spent over 15 years with and learning from election administrators and government officials how votes are cast, counted, and reported so that we can help ensure elections are run in a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent manner. On Dead Men Don't Vote, we share what we've learned, provide insights from the world-class team we've built, interview leading election experts and thought leaders who are passionate about our democracy, and explore elections issues and controversies. We want to rise above the partisanship and muddied waters to answer all your questions about elections in a way that's pro-democracy and inspires trust in our election processes. I'm Gregory Miller, software industry veteran, non-practicing IP lawyer, and tireless advocate for verifiable elections. I'm your host for today's episode, a conversation with David Levine of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Thank you to the listeners. Our growth and audience continues. And we want to especially thank every single one of you who has or is about to leave us a review on Apple iTunes and other podcast platforms. David Levine nearly needs no introduction, frankly, but as the majority of our audiences are not those in the election profession, a proper intro is in order. So let me do that. David's the Elections Integrity Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Where he assesses vulnerability in election, where he assesses vulnerabilities in electoral infrastructure, administration, and policies, the ASD is a nonpartisan initiative of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. This team develops comprehensive strategies to deter, defend against, and raise the cost on autocratic efforts to undermine and interfere in democratic institutions. ASD has a staff in Washington D.C. and Brussels, bringing together experts on disinformation, malign out finance, emerging technologies elections integrity, economic coercion, and cybersecurity, as well as Russia, China, and the Middle East. And this is to collaborate across traditional stovepipes of information and concentration and develop a cross-cutting framework. David is also an advisory committee member of the Global Cyber Alliance's Security Toolkit for Elections, an advisory council member for the Election Reformers Network, a member of the Election Verification Network, and a contributor to the Fulcrum. Now, previously, he worked at Ada County as the Idaho Elections Director, managing the administration of all federal, state, and county and local direct elections. So he's been there and done that. David's research interests and publications train election process, trust, and security, and the nexus between external threats from malign actors and the challenges many democracies face in conducting free and fair elections. So you can bet this will be an interesting conversation given the work of the OSIN Institute. David's work has been published and quoted in USA Today, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, Bloomberg Technology, The Hill, I could go on. But he received his law degree from the Case Western, where he discovered his passion for election integrity. Since then, David's administered elections, as I mentioned. He's worked with advocacy groups to improve the election process. 
and he's observed elections overseas in a number of countries for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Members of our leadership team have had the pleasure and privilege of collaborating with David and ASD. So I have a simple framework for today's conversation about how we get to a place where voters believe in elections and their outcomes. We use a five P's model to think about the election ecosystem. And at each point in that ecosystem, there's a discussion to be had about the challenges and opportunities to improve election security. That 5P framework is comprised of people, process, platform, policy, and politics. So as the guy who walks in between the expertise of David and John, I'll shepherd the conversation along that arc. The goal here is for us to have a good exchange versus a long oration of thought, as I think it'll probably be easier for our audience to digest and make the exchange more interesting. So let's get started. Welcome, David. Greg, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. And John, of course, it's always great to have you back. Okay, so let's start with this notion of people in the ecosystem of elections. One of the things that, David, that we've seen in this last election cycle, we've seen two phenomena, right? One is we're seeing the best of the breed depart or literally run away. And on the other hand, we're seeing some folks find themselves either in the profession or wanting to enter the profession who have other ideas and beliefs about the system as it exists today, and unfortunately have at times gone so far as to be willing to compromise their fiduciary duties to allow external forces in to places that potentially could compromise the integrity of the system or its technology. So people seems like a great place to start in talking about how do we improve election security. Greg, I couldn't agree more. As the January 6th committee noted in its recent report, our democracy ultimately relies on people to carry the day, not only in the United States, frankly, but in democracies across the world. And I think you perfectly framed right this this two-part issue. One, of, one piece of this is, frankly, making sure that we've got the best and brightest who are working in election administration saying in it. And the recent departures of Lisa Mara from Cochise County, Arizona, and Janice Evler from Cobb County, Georgia, illustrate the problem that we are having right now which is that election officials remain under threat, in many cases, based on allegations that are detached from reality. And that puts us in a real difficult spot as we look toward future elections, including 2024. And of course, the flip side of that is we see efforts by actors, many of whom rely on mis- and disinformation that helped lead to the insurrection on January 6th on the U.S. Capitol, who are trying to find ways to interfere in the election process and in some cases, they're tag teaming with folks on the inside of elections. Now, that's a small minority of people, but it's a, it's a minority of folks nonetheless in, in jurisdictions in Colorado, Michigan, Georgia, and elsewhere. We've seen this kind of thing. And that speaks to the tentacles of the big lie and the difficulties and the challenges that exist with trying to beat it back. And, and John, without yet without people... All the technology in the world is not going to run an election by itself. That's for sure. And looking at it from a technology perspective, I want to also say some of the technology is complicated. Some of it is opaque. Uh, it requires serious work and serious dedication for people to do their part in operating it. And it's not often un well understood what their jobs are. And I think that a lack of awareness of what election administrators and election volunteers' real jobs are that leads to, I should say, that provides really fertile ground for some of this conspiracy theory stuff, right? 
So one example that particularly regrettable example that springs to mind from about a little over two years ago is a volunteer in, I believe it was Fulton County, Georgia, being a target of really significant online smear campaign, physical threats at her home. She had to go into hiding, right? And it's incidents like that also have a follow-on toll of convincing folks to basically retire, really senior people retiring, convincing people that were thinking about stepping up, not doing so. It's the lack of understanding of the job leads to lack of respect, which lead can lead to lack of protection. And that's another new thing that we're seeing in this recent election cycle, which is the notion of literally protection of the people that are running our elections. And I do believe some of that ignorance has to do with, the, has a root in the complexity of the technology. Yeah, I think John's right on. One of the things that I think has always been a challenge in elections is for people to wrap their arms around the process and understand it. And up until 2016, quite frankly, these were good faith conversations largely around how elections should be administered. And now what you've seen post-2016, but even more post-2020, the post-2020 presidential election, are bad faith actors that are exploiting the complexity of elections to suit their political interests. And certainly that played a role, right, in the attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. But those efforts didn't stop in 2020. We've seen bad faith actors that have tried to challenge voters on, with regards to disproven allegations. We've seen efforts to try and intimidate voters using drop boxes. And I think one of the things that's really important to note, as John mentioned, is that we're now seeing bad faith actors that are exploiting this problem, which only makes it, of course, more difficult. So it's not just good and bad, but I'm thinking in particular of one situation from the most recent election where a county is board in New Mexico refused to certify the election. Three, Three-person board, two voted against, one of them later changed her mind. But the holdout who never voted to certify the election was not, I don't believe that guy really was um, a conscious political operative. But man, he, had, he, he really believed that the election was illegitimate unless the ballots were hand counted because the Dominion voting system was just somehow wrong. And he said, I don't have evidence. I only need my gut to know this Dominion stuff is wrong and we've got a hand count. And so that's an example of the really effective reach of some of the intentional disinformation, of some of the unintentional amplification of it as misinformation, and eventually reaching some of the people that we're talking about who have real responsibilities and convincing them to basically abdicate their duties. And that's another new thing was the people that we're seeing. And that's not going to stop because we're seeing more people trying to get into uh, the responsibilities of running elections who are going in with the belief that the technology is corrupt and that the processes, which I, so we'll get to next, are also complex and lend themselves to fraud. So if you go in with that response, with that viewpoint, that's going to create a whole new set of not exactly good, not exactly bad, but maybe diluted actors running the show. So yeah, I'm sure we're going to get to process. We will get to process in a moment, but I say I'm sure because I can imagine us talking about this for a long time, but I do have to ask, okay, we have a sense of some of the challenges with people in the system. How do we fix it? How do we improve upon that? How do we, on the one hand, give a reason for the public to say, yeah, these guys are professionals. They know what they're doing and I trust them. And on the other side, how do we give incentive for people to stay with a job that has proven to be thankless? David? Sure. I think that's the million dollar question, Greg. And I think there are a couple of points that are worth noting. One is to note that 
we have imperfect elections in the United States. We've continued to run right free and fair elections by nearly right any any way in which you measure them. And I think it's important to to reiterate that right we can talk to the fact that we're having an increasing number of jurisdictions that are moving to paper based voting systems. We can point to more jurisdictions that are conducting more robust post-election reviews. And we can look to efforts by a number of election officials to try and improve their chain of custody right, protocols. And paper ballots, chain of custody protocols, post-election audits are three keys to election security. I won't say we're all the way there with any of the three of them. Perhaps John and I will get into that a little bit more. But I think there have been some steps taken in the right direction. I think the other thing that's really important to also point out is that there are things that we can do to try and further protect right election officials. We've seen efforts, legislative efforts in Colorado to make sure that there are both funding and provisions that right provide for greater transparency and security for election officials. We've seen regulations passed by the Ohio Secretary of State to help prevent vendors and other inside threat actors from being able to exploit and infiltrate the system. And so I think one of the things that I think is really important is that we are passing legislation that can protect our election workers, including making it harder to dox them. Number two, making sure that we have accountability right, for the bad faith actors. And whether that means that we're holding folks like Tina Peters to account, the former Mesa County clerk, or that we're passing legislation and regulations to keep those people out is important. The third thing I think real quick is the need to conduct robust, right, widespread awareness campaigns right, preemptively about how, in fact, right, elections are conducted so that more and more people hopefully are understanding what in fact goes into the process and that when they hear bad information, they know how to filter that out. I'm going to follow up on a couple of those points, David. But before I do that, I want to kick it back to you just for a minute, which is it's going to be a given that some of the people who are beginning to become involved in election administration are not undertaking it with a spirit of public service. And as you said, it's probably not that many people, but it doesn't take that many people to create a lot of doubt. What kind of tools or perspectives are available to the people who are policymakers to try to get a handle on, uh, ideally, you know, how to identify and prevent some of these people who are probably conscious bad actors, but also how to respond to them? Do you, is there any guidance available for that you can point to? Sure. I think that we've seen folks like the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency that have put out guidance on the kinds of things that you can do to prevent, detect, and recover from insider threats. And that talks about right, having cameras right widely in place. It talks about having key access cards to limit right who can go into sensitive areas with election infrastructure. And it's also about right making sure that you have multiple people in some of these places so that one bad actor is unlikely to be able to make a difference. I also think there's a possibility, and we've seen this now in Colorado and other places, where you can ratchet up penalties for those people that are purposely trying to either exploit the process or harm other folks, right? We've seen efforts at the federal level to explicitly include election workers as folks that you can't be threatening and intimidating. We've also seen efforts to try and make sure that if you're going to use public information requests as what amounts to a DDoS attack, that also can be a way to be held accountable. So there are some ideas that are out there, but admittedly, part of this also is going to become is also a function of trying to make it politically really difficult for these folks. And when I say politically difficult, I mean in the sense of making sure these people are not winning at the ballot box, right? 
making sure that these people are shunned, right, if they're trying to sort of enter any kind of right elected office, and making sure that people understand the stakes of what's involved in the midterms. It appears that in a number of battleground states, people got the message and they resolutely, almost uniformly rejected election deniers. But at the same token, we see more election deniers in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House today. So the mixed bag. David, I like it how you actually walk through all five P's in order to answer that <laughs> prompt for me. Hey, get the hang of this. So my comeback is really with one word, money. And the particular kind of money is appropriations. Now we, now we get into to policy, but uh, you've alluded to more accountable processes. That includes better physical facilities. Some counties are moving lock, stock, and barrel the county elections office out of this or general county offices into a special facility. That's great. Talked about more security cameras and stuff like that. Also, well, security protections, like literally security guards, bodyguards, stuff like that. Those are all wonderful responses to the stuff, I was going to use a more rude word, to the stuff that we've seen in the past couple election cycles, but it's also a really increased cost of doing the election business that has to literally be borne by the taxpayers of the states and in some cases counties. And it's a necessary part of the policy initiative as well, getting legislatures and county authorities to know that among the increasing costs of running elections, because there's all sorts of increasing costs, safety and protection is among it. This episode of Dead Men Don't Vote is made possible in part by the Verified Voting Foundation. The foundation strengthens democracy for all voters by promoting responsible use of technology in elections. Verified Voting works with election officials, policymakers, and democracy defenders across party lines to support public confidence in elections. Learn more at www.verifiedvoting.org. And when we speak of process, which is where we've been wandering into that area, it seems to me that there's two pieces of this. There's the process of the people and how they do what they do. But then there's process that's enabled by platform, by technology. There are several aspects of process we could do an entire episode on ranging from how long does it take to get results pumped out and why are the lines so long on election day. Let's try to approach this from a general angle of the process of elections and how to make it feel like it's more believable. John, why don't you, why don't you take this up with the technology angle on it? Are there things that can help people feel better about the process and what's going on there? So I would say from the technology part of the process of administering and conducting elections. Of course, there's the opacity issue. And actually, I'm going to kick that back to you, Rick, at the appropriate point here to, to give the little mini polemic about that. But I think that, the, that there is also a really important element, and again, money is an issue, that David referred to, and that's public awareness and education. Election officials have been increasingly saying, yeah, it's part of our job to explain stuff to people. But that's still new to a lot of election officials, also requires funding. And the really tricky bit that I'd really like our listeners to understand is there is no way you could do a national or even a state level um, each project to try to educate voters about how elections work because they work different in every single state. And we'll get back to some of those when we, for example, we talk about the policy issues in, say, in Pennsylvania in particular. So it really is largely a local function. It's different in every state and large localities 
do their elections hugely differently than small localities. It's going to be a local responsibility to explain what the freaking process is. And rather than a holistic approach, which normally I'm a bottom-up holistic kind of guy, um, I really think that there's going to need to be some guidance and assistance to mostly local and some state election officials on how to pick the high points of misconceptions and just explain it how it works in a completely normal way. My top example would be, what do we do with absentee ballots when we get them? You know, there's all sorts of stories about that, but there's real answers. And the answer is very state and even county to county within a state. So that's, that is, involves the technology, but it also is something where you have to be very clear about what are the people's responsibility in the process versus the technology's responsibility. Yeah. Thankfully, John went where I wanted him to go which is if there's any theme here that we can give to our audience, is this, we have to just reinforce this time and again. Elections are a local matter from the people, from the process, from all of it. And when we talk about process, the most important thing, I think, and I want to hear you riff on this, is that when we talk process, we have to ask, or we have to sort of caveat that or footnote that, that it's going to depend upon where you are because one size does not fit all by law. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, John, you touched, John and Greg, you guys touched at the top. Before coming into my current role at the German Marshall Fund, I was the elections director in Ada County, Idaho. And in Idaho, early voting is something that can be adopted county to county. And if you do it, at least right now in Idaho, you have to do it for a minimum of two weeks. And so when Ada County adopted early voting, the way we talked about conducting elections was dramatically different in a much smaller jurisdiction that had no early voting, right? We used it to get people out to vote. We talked about how it made it easier to administer the process. We even talked about how early voting made the process more secure because we were able to better tell when one person went to vote in one area, whether or not they were going to try and go and vote elsewhere because we could see that in real time. And of course, if we had issues early in the voting process, we were likely to be able to resolve them before the end of the voting period. And to your, Greg, and John's point, got 8,000 plus jurisdictions 50 states, but even within each of those states, it can be dramatically different. And so it's really important to be talking to your local election official so that you have a sense for exactly how elections are run, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with how they are conducted where you are. I think it's right on. And I have to say that one of the most intellectually dishonest things that powers disinformation is taking an incident in a specific county and conveniently suggesting that's happening everywhere. And I think this gets back to John's point that the only cure here is going to be education and awareness building. And it's something that's just going to have to be done. I want to come back to my theme of money and people, this time in the context of process. There's a related problem to what we're talking about, which is it's just being fundamentally understaffed in in, in many places. And that's because it was never a hugely fun job, because believe me, I've done it, to be an election day volunteer or to volunteer at a a vote center during early voting or to be a, an hourly contractor doing paper sorting for absentee ballots. These are all jobs that are understaffed and they cost money to fill. So I think it's another increasing people related cost that for all of these processes that need to be better understood, we needed really just more money to recruit and frankly pay people. And then there's a policy issue too. Here in California, you got to work, you got to work an 18 hour shift and we need legal enablement to allow people to sign up to work, work in polling places for nine hour shifts. 
So the point I'm making here about the process and the awareness is if we're able to get our state and local election authorities to spend more money getting full staffing, including volunteers, that is the leading edge of voter education. I mean, it would be great if the emphasis on recruiting at some point, if we had this luxury, was getting new people in to volunteer and run these processes and give some of the old timers a break. Hey, come back next year. Make room for some of these newcomers because we want them to understand how it works by doing it. I think that's right, John. I, one of the things that I will say that's interesting is that when you look at the Eve survey following the 2020 election, right? The Eve survey is this election administration survey carried out by the Election Assistance Commission. What you do find is that there were a huge number, right, of younger workers that stepped up to replace and sometimes supplement some of the more traditional workers that have been there. I'll be very interested to see when that Eve survey for 2022 comes out, yeah. whether that momentum continue. I remember being stunned when I found it after 2020 that there were jurisdictions, some urban, that were reporting overages of poll workers. But your bottom line point remains. And that is, we have a hard time simply funding the administration of elections in accordance with local, state, and federal law. And that means anything else that's above and beyond that gets short shrift all too often. That includes countering mis- and disinformation. That includes being able to recruit poll workers. That includes being able to get a more diverse workforce that is responsive to the threats that we currently face today. I have to agree. that It all starts from the bottom up with the funding on what gets perceived as extra. But I also have a word to say here about process before we move along. And this is a word that I have to say for, for lack of a better word, wobbliists. So these are people who are not deniers, but they've absorbed a lot of media and information that sounds like, that looks like smoke, right? Whether it's smoke, there's fire. So here's a really important piece of direct advice I have for any listeners who are wobbliists or no wobbliists, or for a local election officials to engage wobbliists. If you've got a concern about the integrity of elections, stick to your local figure out what's going on where you vote and focus on that. Is there a problem? Maybe you could find it, but first learn how it works where you vote. And if you hear about strange stuff or strange to you stuff happening in other parts of the country, just sit back and say, elections are local. What could be fraud over there is normal here and vice versa. Let me stick to the integrity of my own local elections and leave it to my compatriots over there in Pennsylvania or wherever to focus on the integrity of their elections. Uh, you're taking all the fun out of social media, John. <laughs> but David, this is the point in which we say, okay, so what do we do to improve? And we've mentioned money when I know that there are various policies that make elections easier, convenient, dare I say delightful. And we also know that one size doesn't fit all. So we're not prescribing a nationwide movement here. But in your experience as an election director, as a strategist on elections as you are today, a security wonk in that regard, if you could give our audience two or three things that you believe, know, or predict could improve the process of elections, whether it be vote centers or everybody gets a ballot and it's all vote by mail, what are the things that are striking you as really working? Yeah, I think early voting is really working. There's been a lot of conversation about SB202 and how effective it was, and we can talk about it if we want, but 
One thing that I think is not debatable is that early voting takes pressure off of other parts of the election process. And a lot of people talk about how it makes it easier to vote and more accessible. Yeah, of course. But it also makes it easier to administer the process. And the Presidential Commission on Election Administration in 2014 touched on this, right? When you have a situation where people are voting over a long period of time, instead of all the calls coming in on one day, right, you have that process spread out over more time. And not only is early voting good for election administration and access, it's really good for election security. Chris Krebs on Election Day 2020 spoke about right, how the Proud Boys initiative, right, this was an initiative in which we initially thought there were, right, it was Proud Boy actors, but it turned out to be Iranian-affiliated actors that were putting out, right, false information about U.S. elections, right? They tried to basically scare off some folks from being able to participate, and the intelligence community was able to figure out what occurred and quickly downgrade that information, get it out to election officials who could then subsequently inform the public. And this was all done just a few days ahead of Election Day. When you have early voting, you have the ability to help inform those voters and give them an opportunity to still participate in the process. Whereas if this had all happened on election day, you would have found yourself in a much more difficult spot. So early voting is one thing that I think is really is a really helpful reform. And you don't just see this as something that the left is adopting. Even in states that have adopted tougher, quote unquote, election security laws, SB1, right, in, in, in Texas, we saw SB202 in Georgia, they called for more early voting. The second thing that I think is really important and we can get into, of course, is having more robust post-election audits. And I use that phrase as an umbrella phrase, which we can get into. We want to be able to hand review as many ballots as we need to be able to validate the winners and validate the losers. We also want to be able to get to a point where we are auditing or checking other parts of the process that help ensure that, in fact, the ballot that was put into the ballot box is reflected in the, of course, in the final result. And so we can talk about post-election audits, procedural audits, other audits being really important. And then the third thing that I think is really important that I think is worth talking on is having more robust observation, particularly nonpartisan observation of the process. The There were three, the State Board of Elections from Georgia recently just put out a 19-page report in which it said unambiguously that Fulton County shouldn't have its elections taken over by the state of Georgia, right, after a law that was passed in 2021 would have allowed for that. And this group of Republicans and Democrats were crystal clear about why that was the case. And one of the biggest reasons was they didn't see a whole lot to write home about in 2022. And the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why they didn't see a lot to write home about was because they had the Carter Center with hundreds of observers watching seeing, looking, and reporting back. And what they reported back was that Fulton County did a pretty good job. And so for me, those are three big reforms that I think can not only help improve the conduct of elections in the United States, but frankly, in democracies across the world. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to, to build on that just a little bit before we move on, because I want to point out the there's a synergy between them. And I also want to point out that there's no one size fits all because every state has its own political culture. And you're never gonna you're never gonna get all the reform all over the place. There, nobody's gonna be everybody. Stay, every state is not gonna be Oregon, for example, or Colorado. But but really, wow, early voting. It not only does it make us more resilient against all sorts of attacks because it's not all in one day. It really also makes it more resistant to disinformation, and it really can take a lot of the wind out of some naysayers' sails by providing people an option 
instead of mail voting. It's like a lot of people just don't want to vote on election day or risk it and they vote by mail if that's available to them. And in those parts of the countries where there is suspicion about mail ballot fraud and all this kind of stuff, totally unfounded suspicions we need to point out, give people as a policy matter, give them an alternative process to follow early voting. And early voting also makes it a lot easier to do what I call evidence-based election administration. Being able to conduct an election where there are particular requirements for processes in which people do what parts and what order and what records you keep to show that, that those policies and procedures were actually followed so that people who are suspicious can come in and look at these records. And as you say in Fulton County, thanks to the Carter Center, so there wasn't a lot of irregularities there, but we can't have the Carter Center observing everywhere. We need to have, and again, funding for routine collection of evidence about election operations to support the type of process audits where not you know, politically crowdfunded organizations, but probably a state oversight board can come into a county and say, great, show us your evidence that you did everything right and have that be normalized rather than politicized. So all three of your things, David, I think really fit together in that regard. Yeah, we need to move that along to, to of course, the underlying platform, but but sort of two intellectual, honest housekeeping points. Guys, for the audience here, uh, are we intentionally conflating early voting with the vote at home or vote by mail? Do we mean early voting to cover all of those things from vote centers to doing it by home? Or do we feel it's necessary to distinguish that early no, voting very, very is the process of going in person? versus filling your ballot out at home. Just let's let the audience be clear what we what early voting means and how does that include or not include vote by mail. Real fast. I'll just jump in real quick. No, I was referring to early in-person voting, which gives you the ability to vote at polling locations with right trained workers usually right ahead of election day, in part because there seems to still be political consensus around that, and in part for the reasons John mentioned about people having, in many cases, concerns, even if they're not well-founded, about mail voting. But I appreciate that point, because I, I think, to your broader point, certainly across the world, we've seen the expansion of pre-election day opportunities in a variety of ways. But I was speaking yeah. in-person early voting in the United States. Yeah, me too. But Greg, I think you, you raised an important point, and this is something, of course, we I think we say practically every episode of Dead Men Don't Vote. There is no such thing as normal terminology in U.S. elections. Some terms mean completely different things in different places. So yeah, early voting in some circles is an omnibus general thing for anything you do. But what David and I are talking about here is distinct. There's by mail voting or absentee voting um, versus in-person voting in a vote center before election day. So spreading out the in-person voting process over multiple days so frankly, it's just easier for everybody, poll workers include. Of course, it costs extra money to do that. That's that is such an that is an essential thing, and it's one that seemingly doesn't cross political boundaries anymore. So now we're actually seeing politicized conversations, not over whether early voting is a good idea, but how many days should we offer it. Sure, we're going to end up compressing some of the uh, the policy and politics topics here for the sake of time, but I do want to. Say one other thing at Deadman Don't Vote, we always try to do, which is ensure our audience knows that we have a 360 degree view of every issue, which means the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. So I would be remiss if I didn't say for all of our agreement and touting on the value of early voting, is there a downside? Sure. One of in, them in is our staffing <laughs> requirements and okay. increased funding requirements. And it's very 
encouraging that many places seem to think it's worth the money. It has additional technology required. Things called electronic poll books are pretty frequently used in vote centers for some good reasons and others not so much. And also the policy and legal framework behind their use is hasn't caught up to reality. So yeah, there's definitely issues. We can talk to, what was it, Johnson County, Indiana, I guess five years ago where their e-poll books stopped checking people in and said, what do we do for hours? People want to vote. And it turned right. out lots of people voted what turned out illegally and they decided to just give it a pat, got the ballots. And, and David, real fast from your side, any downsides that, yeah. out of fairness? No, yeah, no, when you have a larger surface area, that means you got more to cover, real simple. And so it's a matter of, to, to John's point, you need the right people, you need the right security precautions, you need the right planning in place so that you can defend those potential those potential vulnerabilities. Great. And this next, the next piece of our ecosystem that we're going to take pretty quickly is going to be based on a premise that I'm going to posit now to the two of you. John already knows this. So we believe that there has been, there is a 20-year innovation vacuum in the state of the technology by which we cast and counter ballots and administer our elections. There are inherent architectural flaws, right? No, nothing was subverted to the very best of our knowledge in 16, 18, 20, or 22. But yet we know fundamentally that the way voting systems, election administration systems are designed today is inherently antithetical to high assurance, fault tolerant, high reliable computing principles. And we have come to the conclusion that the disinformation and election denialism out there is catalyzed by two problems, opacity and obsolescence. And I'm going to ask that, John, that uh, David, you take the opacity issue, because we know that issue on this side, right? That's the whole transparency quotient. And then I'm going to ask John to take the obsolescence issue. Within the platform world, we're saying, look, we have got to address these two issues. Talk to us, David, a little bit in a short amount of time here we have about what opacity does to catalyze the problems that you deal with in election misinformation and disinformation and what we could do in your mind to fix that. Sure. When people don't know information, sometimes basic information, about the voting systems that are out in states and jurisdictions, then there's an information vacuum. And that vacuum can quickly be filled, right, either by folks well-intentioned who put forth information that's not true or by people who are not well-intentioned, who are simply trying to subvert the process. And frankly, we've now gotten to a point in the U.S. elections context where, frankly, we are leaning heavily on putting safeguards around our voting technologies to ensure that we can carry out elections and putting a great deal of strain on, among other things, right, having paper ballots, having really strong chin of custody protocols, and then trying to have these reviews. And whenever you put strains on certain safeguards, one of the concerns is if the strains are undue or too burdensome, then you create greater risk. And so I think one of the concerns, real quick, is that we need to have greater oversight in many cases of the vendors that we currently have out there. There have been hearings that have been held on this. And we need to ensure right, that people have the information that they need about the vendors so that they don't aren't in a position of being able to easily assume the worst. Among other sure. And, and, and let me just leave it there and say about the vendors, <clears throat> none of them are owned by George Soros or Hugo Chavez. <laughs> okay, indeed. You laugh, you laugh, but there's still stuff like that floating around. 
and servers in Spain, sure. And opacity here, I think, is we think is a big driver of this, that as long as these things do not have the transparency necessary. One of the things that we like to say around here is that trust is what black box closed systems demand. Belief is what glass box systems deliver. But to get to glass box, that means we've got to address some of the encroaching obsolescence. And so, John, in, in, in a minute, tell us about the challenge that obsolescence is bearing down on the platform. Current voting system products are just built on an antique PC technology, which, as David said, requires a lot of safeguards around it. And also, it really wasn't developed. <clears throat> I hate to say this, it's going to sound bad, but it really wasn't developed for excellence. So good enough is good enough. And so there are human factors that are built into the design of these existing voting system products that turn out to be really horrible. So like one is, oh, you put a USB stick in there and you don't know where it came from. The whole thing is potentially compromised now. We shouldn't actually be using voting systems that have that problem. Another one is pretty well-known, Antrim County, Michigan. Just basic hum human error caused voting machines to be used that had the wrong data in them. It was just a version mismatch between the, the voting machine, the ballots, and the data that was put in. Any kind of system that was designed for quality, for defense against human error, would not allow a voting machine to go into service with the data that was the wrong version. Right? Part of the obsolescence issue is that the design of these systems was done 20 more years ago in a completely different world order. There was no such thing as election-critical infrastructure. Homeland security hadn't been invented yet. And we assumed that all election officials were completely trustworthy and that they could demand trust from everyone and it would mostly be given. All of those have changed. And that means that from the technology up to human factors for administering the technology, it all needs to be resought. Indeed. Which we're doing. So there's just a couple minutes left, and I'm going to do this anyway, converge the last two Ps of policy and politics, because unfortunately they tend to converge on their own, which means I'm going to give these last two minutes, they literally are, to David. Because if we're going to improve the security of elections and more importantly, improve belief and confidence in elections and their outcomes for 24, which we know there's going to be so much online, what do you see are the two or three big policy issues, David, that are going to require some political willpower either at the state level or the federal level because of that tug of war of interest versus rights that are likely to have the most impact on how 24 comes out? That's a great question to end on, and I'll give a couple of thoughts. Obviously, love to hear yours as well as those who are tuning in. One of the things I think that's really important to touch on here is money. It's a point that John has raised time and time again. Will election officials have the money to properly protect themselves and be able to re retain and recruit the best and the brightest? And if right, the feds, for example, aren't willing to step up, and certainly they haven't stepped up recently, right? The recent $75 million was a drop in the bucket, as was the previous $75 million and the previous zero. Are states going to step up? We see states do what Pennsylvania did. Right, which was to put down $45 million to try and support their state and local election officials. I think this is going to be really critical because if folks feel like they have the money to be able to protect themselves and their equipment, that might impact whether or not they're going to stay on. And as we know from research from the Democracy Fund right, and Reed College and the Brennan Center, we're talking one in five who might be looking to leave right before 2024. So I think money is a really important piece. 
I think the second thing that I think is really important, and again, something that we've touched on, is are the changes that we're going to see evidence-based? Are they driven by social science and the data on the ground? Because I think that really matters, right? We saw in Florida changes to vote by mail that were unanimously condemned and rejected by the Florida supervisors of elections. And that really matters because if you have legislation that's amplified by mis- and disinformation, whether it's Florida or what we saw in Texas a couple of years ago, then you have the potential concern of having your states being less secure with regards to the running of elections than you had before. And the third thing that I think is going to be really important to see is, are we going to see Americans at large step up? Are we going to continue to see some of the high turnout that we saw in the 2020 presidential election? Are we going to see people step up to be poll workers? Are we going to see people sharing accurate information about their election processes and calling out their friends and family or maybe nicely having conversations when the information that's being shared is not correct? There was just enough in some respects to get by in 2020, perhaps a little more in 2022, but we need to really clear that threshold as we gear up for 2024. Thank you, David, and thank you, John. This has been a great conversation. Two things to close out on. One, I want to share with our audience that if you're intrigued by any of the conversation we've had today, note that David Levine and ASD and, and we at the OSA Institute are contemplating a collaboration later this year to start examining some of these things with regards to in, ensuring the security of all five Ps, if you will, of the ecosystem. And the second and last thing then is there's a saying that goes, I never make predictions, especially about the future. With that said, I'm going to ask each of you on a scale of one to five, I know it's early. I know it's way over the horizon, but it'll be fun to do this and come back and revisit it in September. And then, so on a scale of one to five, where one is calm and five is chaos, what's 2024 going to be? David? Right. I'm usually a little disinclined here on the numbers, but for purposes of this, little wrong. <laughs> I, will, I know you are. I, I will go and put it at a three. I think in some places, we're seeing, right, we are beginning to see some progress in terms of putting people in place and introduce measures to make our election infrastructure and the integrity of our elections a bit better. But I remain concerned about certain parts of the country where there isn't the kind of resistance to some of the election denials and that we've seen in particular since 2020. And, and look at areas with regards to, are they going to procure election equipment that's based on best practices? Are they going to have election officials who are going to put free and fair elections above partisan interests? And are the people that are going to be participating relying on good information when they do? Yeah. And we'll just skip over independent state legislature theory. But I have to say, I gave you the safe harbor of 3.0 because I knew where you were going to go there. I was hoping you might get a little edgy and say, this is different than the midterm. There's a date certain that we have to have this figured out. There's a lot more riding on it. So maybe I'm a 3.5, but I'll take you, three. You, you want to see how aggressive John wants want to be. John, you get five. I'll give you five straight up, but here's why. So the answer to all of those great questions that David just posed, the answer is yes and no. Yes in some places, no in others. The mix is important, but it only takes a few places where there is effectively sown chaos to really create a problem. I won't go into it right now, but people use a great, just Google a great Wikipedia article on the Brooks Brothers riot in 2000. Okay. That was a carefully orchestrated operation by political operatives and it changed the 
political complexion of the country at the dawn of this century. Crazy. So it only takes a few places. I'm going to say Pennsylvania is going to be a really stupidly hot spot unless the Pennsylvania state legislature changes its state election law that prevents election officials from touching absentee ballots until after the polls close, whereas in other states, they at least sort them, do the signature checks ahead of time, whatever. And we will never, I don't believe, because it's complicated, we'll never stamp out the disinformation that we saw about drops of counting ballots and the sudden swinging and the prismatic algorithm and all that. So what worked in two years ago is going to be part of the playbook in the coming election cycle. That the real issue is, are, what are the threat actors going to choose to do? And if we have nation-state threat actors ramping up the disinfo, lulling us perhaps a little bit in this past election cycle, it could get ugly really quick. And political violence is increasing, not decreasing. I'm going to give five in a few hot spots. Maybe 3.5 overall, but 3.5 average overall does not mean we have an uncontested election. I, and I think that's a really, sorry, Greg, for this, but I think that's a really important distinction, right? An overturned election in one place or a hotly contested election that shouldn't be so is one hotly contested election too many. And I want to be clear, trying to claim that issues with ballot printers in Maricopa County are grounds for overturning an election is problematic. That's not the kind of thing that we need. We should be having in healthy democracies. I think that hypervigilance is going to be the name of the game as we get closer and closer. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And on that note, we'll wrap by saying that the two non-practicing lawyers on today's show, who are non-practicing for a reason, still, nevertheless, despise and fear the word never, but never in this case may be closer to reality than we think. For those people who caught me saying some uh, legal gizmo jumble called independent state legislature theory, feel free to also Google Moore v. Harper and North Carolina, and uh, you'll learn the thing that is darkening the doorstep of everyone in the legal world about the future of election administration in that regard. And on that note, I want to thank everybody for joining us in this conversation today. Remember that the speak pipe is on deadmendon'tvote.org to allow you to ask questions or send follow-ups. We play them back on subsequent episodes, and we promise to address them as we get them. So thank you for that. Thank you, David, for imparting your wisdom on us today. Thank you, John, for your always entertaining insights from, from the CTO's uh, church. And with that, I think we'll call it good. Thanks, guys. <laughs>